Welcome to this week's episode of The Mixtape with Scott. I'm the host, Scott Cunningham, professor at Baylor University and an economist. Um, it is end of the year. I cannot believe a year has passed. I just got used to writing 2023 on the checks, uh, and now I'm going to have to figure out how to do 2024. When I was a kid, uh, 2024 was... Uh, basically the future that was really far into the future and uh you know it's uh we didn't get we didn't get all the stuff that i was hoping we were going to get but we did get a nobel prize in causal inference and so you know that was that was nice um so a uh, little bit about this week we are gonna have a guest uh named marion uh wanamaker Marion is a professor of economics at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, where I did my undergrad. Uh, she was not one of my professors. I was not an econ major in college. We're about the same same age, roughly. Uh, she is a very interesting person. Um, she's the executive director of the Howard H. Baker Jr. Center for Public Policy at the UT at the University of Tennessee, which is, I believe she is the Dean of the new public policy school at UT. Uh, so she's moved into this higher level of administration. And I thought it would be great for people to kind of hear more of the stories of uh, young economists that are moving now into these administrative positions. Um, she is a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. She served as a former chief domestic economist at the White House Council of Economic Advisors. She's uh, been a former consultant for Bain and Company. She serves on the board of a lot of firms. She's really uh, fascinating. And um, just in terms of that kind of ambition, and uh, I don't even know if ambition is the right word. It's just, you know, she's got a lot of fingers and a lot of a lot of things. And it kind of reminds me of Susan Athey a little bit uh, of just having so many skills, so many uh, different things that she can do. And, you know, it's it's just one of these things, I think, that as a young person uh, hearing the story of these kind of mid-career people, in economics, and actually, it I think Marion kind of hit it pretty quickly, rather, maybe within 10 or so years of, of uh, graduating at, uh, from Northwestern, um, just to see all the opportunities of your talent, you know, of your under of your underlying skills, have you realize are going to be in demand, they're going to be in demand uh, in all kinds of unexpected ways, your true self uh, can kind of flourish in uh, as you sort of progress if you're open to those opportunities and and you're able to and you're able to get into a place where you can get them. So Marion is by training uh, an economic historian and a very good one and she's going to talk to us a little bit about that that journey. Uh, but I just wanted to you know conclude this little opening uh, of just saying, Thanks again for listening. Hope you like this uh, talk and uh, hope that you can uh, continue to share and, uh, you know, share and rate and all that stuff. Uh, I was also going to say one more thing. I have this 
Substack, uh, Causal Inf, I-N-F, C-A-U-S-A-L-I-N-F dot substack.com. It's horribly named. That used to be my Twitter handle, though, Causal Inf. Um, that I'm going all in on and really doing a lot more writing for it. This is where I host the um, Substack is where I host the podcast, even though you might be listening to it on, on Spotify, I host it there. And I'm doing a lot more of writing original content, writing a lot of explainers about econometrics and even doing my own kind of style of history of thought types things, not things that I think really probably are suitable for um, academic publication, but they're kind of the sort of stuff I got to get off my chest a little bit. I got I to gotta, I gotta tell the history of diff and diff, or I got to tell the history of, uh, you know, whatever else I'm going to be obsessed with soon. And so, um, but one of the things I do on the Substack is every Monday, I do what's called the, the mixtape mailbag, and people will write me their questions, and then I will uh, write an answer. I'll write an answer and it's buyer beware. Cause you know, uh, I wouldn't say that I'm competent at anything. Uh, and so, you know, but I, I will kind of share my opinions. And usually what I do is I ask an econometrician uh, to also share their opinions. And uh, in doing so, you can sort of grade me, uh, you know, and see how well I agree with them. So last week we did a diff and diff one. Someone wrote in a, a question about um, struggling with some recommendations from a, a, a journal, a journal revision and referees and editors were saying to do something and they were worried that it was creating problems. And so it was kind of this mix of like diff and diff and also how do I, you know, what do I say type thing. And so I wrote like a really long one, uh, you know, obviously I'm going to basically write the longest unnecessary, you know, response to something. But Brantley Calloway wrote a very efficient one, Brant Calloway of the Calloway and Santana Estimator. And so, you know, I, I think it's really kind of fun. And if you have any questions, if you have any questions, feel free to uh, write them in at uh, my email address. Just kind of say questions for Matt Mixate mailbag, mailbag, and I'll uh, crank that sucker up, put it in the queue and try to give you a half-baked answer. All right. So welcome to uh, Marianne Wanaker. Let me let you introduce yourself now. Well, it's my pleasure to have on the podcast this week, someone that I actually, we've spoken, uh, but only by email. Uh, Marianne Wanamaker from, uh, is here with me. Thank you so much, Marianne, for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Okay. So tell me, uh, for the sake of the, the listeners, uh, Tell us your title, uh, your job, your title, and who pays your salary or who pays the, the one that you want to share with me. Great question. So um, I am the dean of the new Howard Baker Policy School at the University of Tennessee hmm. and also a professor of economics and public policy here. That is crazy. So who pays my bills? I guess it's the citizens of the state of Tennessee. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Okay. I think it's so neat that you're that you're the how long have you been the dean now? I was gonna get to uh, this later, but July one. So, you know, a few months. Wow. So neat. Okay. All right. So before we get going, an icebreaker. 
Can you tell me one of your fondest memories as a kid of vacationing with your family? Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, you know, we uh, would go to Disney World every four or five years as a kid. And um, my dad is a lot like I am, like high executive functioning kind of person. And so he would he would have a plan and he would want to execute the plan. And the plan always included running the first half mile into the park. You know, my mom was like never on board with the plan. So she would be dragging behind and they'd be in a fight within five minutes of being, <laughs> being in the park. Not a real fight, but just like a frustration sort of fight, you know. So anyway, but uh, that's a great family memory and something that I still try to do with my kids. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, so where did you grow up and where's your accent from? I, I'm just kidding. Um, I grew up in Northwest Tennessee. So oh. Tennessee. Um, home of uh, used to be the Pacers when I was a kid. UT Martin Pacers. Now they're the Skyhawks. Yeah, okay. So part of the University of Tennessee system, um, but a very rural location. Um, and then lived in Nashville. Went to school in Nashville, and I've I left the state, but now I'm back. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I grew up in Mississippi, but I went to high school and college. You know, I went to the University of Tennessee. I told you that. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, I grew up in a rural area too. How big was the town you grew up in? About 7,000 people. My 7, graduating 000? class. Yeah, my graduating class from high school was about 110. So not, wow. I mean, could be smaller, but yeah. also could have been bigger. But also yeah. just remote. Like we were always, as a kid, as kids, we were three hours from an airport. That's a long way from, mm. you know, a plane that's going to take you somewhere else. So, yeah. um. So there was just a lot of ruralness about it. And in many ways, that was great. I think there are a lot of good things about that. Yeah. Where, um, uh, like, what would you like to do as a kid when you were just playing games and stuff when you were little? Um, well, we were bored a lot. You know, yeah. I used to tell my, I tell my kids, like my mom, when I was a kid, she would, in the summertime, she would lock us out of the house between 10 and four. Yeah. You are not allowed back in this house and you just have to go figure out something to do. So mm. we rode bikes, we played softball, we played at night, we would play like capture the flag or hide and go seek and all of the adjacent yards in our neighborhood. And so I don't know. I mean, just whatever. And I think that's actually something that that's a lost art. I know. Like my kids don't experience the world that way. They're, they're never bored. Right. Um, so it's just totally different, totally different yeah. way of growing up. Boy, that bicycle as a kid. I mean, I and gr growing up at, in my little town too. I just rode that bike everywhere. It was just, just let you know. It's just, it's just. Uh, when I think of a bike and being a kid in a small town, I just think of freedom and and just exploring stuff. I bet. Uh, so, how how many close buddies did you did you have? Was it you still had close friends in this like little rural town as a kid growing up? Oh sure. Oh yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And people who, you know, like to this day, um, they would do anything for me and I'd do anything for them. You yeah. know, just a, there's just a real bond in growing up in a place like that. Um, yeah. You really know people. At what the was end the of library job, like? What was the public library like for you as a kid? Was it oh, any good? great question. Okay, so that town actually has a fantastic library that did a summer reading program my whole childhood, my mom was involved in that organization, still is involved in that organization. Mm. And they actually just built a new library that is a total showcase. It is beautiful. It's huge. Mm. 
beautiful. And it has an outdoor stage built on the back of the building. And so they do wow. all of these like outdoor concerts and stuff in the summer. It's really like a town gathering place. So, yeah. yeah. You're an economic historian. So like, I'm just kind of curious, is the, the way, I mean, this is random, but it, is the way America has done its public libraries being so great for kids normal? Is that like a, an American thing or even, is it even? Yeah, it's an American thing. Yeah. That's an American thing. That's an American we do that, thing. That's yeah, how that's we do Carnegie. it. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I mean, we, that was a, you know, that's a philanthropist funded kind of process and yeah, oh. we're, we're pretty unique in that. Huh. It made such a difference for me as a kid. I just would drive my bike down there and I went back, you know, it's crazy when you go back, if you haven't been to your, like, if you haven't been to your small town kid library and you go back as an adult, you cannot believe how, uh, the ceilings are not as tall as you thought they were. They were, they just were, you know, you're like, you, you go back and you're like, I can almost touch these ceilings. Um, yeah, that, that's great. So what did your mom and dad do for a living? Um, my mom was a faculty member at UT Martin. She's a chemist. Oh, oh um, she's a chemist. Okay. She's a chemist. Yeah. And my dad is a physician and he actually, went to medical school. They met when um, they were both in school in Memphis and he went to medical school on a deal that he wouldn't have to pay his loans back if he went to a rural community. Oh, and he right. married a PhD chemist. So it's kind of a conundrum. Like where could we live that you can work and I can have my loans forgiven. And so um, where I grew up was the answer to that question because yeah. it was, it did have a campus. It had a great, you know, a really great university, but also, qualified as rural um for the program that he was in and so they're still there um Wait, that could be really hard that could be really hard falling in love with somebody in that situation and you can't solve that body problem that's a i've never even heard of that kind of body problem yeah it's kind of interesting and he you know he didn't come from money like it didn't come from a family that had anything so there wasn't really an option like he had to he had to find a, a way to live in a rural place despite yeah. having grown up in Memphis himself. So that's great. So I didn't put that together. So you you you're you grew up in basically UT Martin. Yep. Oh, I I get it. Very much so. Got yep. it. Got it. Got it. Okay. And uh and so how many siblings did you have? I'm or the oldest siblings? of three girls. What's that? Oh yeah. I'm, I'm the oldest of three girls. Three girls. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And I have two girls myself. So it's kind of a family of women. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what was family like? Uh, what was family life around the dinner table? Like when you were a kid? You know, we, uh, we ate later than everybody else. My dad uh, would get home late. He would in small town, you run your practice and then you round at mm, the hospital when you're done. So he would oh. leave the office at five 30 and go to the hospital. And then he still had, you know, an hour or two hours worth to do still. So I had friends whose family, it's a Southern thing. I think you probably mm-hmm. know this, like friends whose families ate dinner at four 30. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. I think it was like a farming culture sort of thing. <laughs> and we ate dinner at like eight 30, like it's like a different planet. So um, anyway, but good. And you know, my parents, like um, they didn't do, they didn't have a ton of hobbies that weren't us, you know, yeah. so they were always there. Um, mm. And so that was, there was a lot of family time. Again, it's just a slower pace of life when you're not in a mm. bigger, not in a bigger city. Yeah, sure. Sure. Uh, so, so you go into high school and uh, I mean, what kind of subject, what kind of student would you, would your students have said, you know, Marianne's this kind of student. Like if they saw you, if I could talk to them now, what, what do you think they would have sort of neutrally said if they don't know what happened to you later? 
Oh, you know, um, like many economists, I think I was a very good student and a total perfectionist uh-huh. um, and um, loved math always. Yeah. That was always my subject matter. I didn't really, mm. like I could muddle through the sort of Eng- English language arts side of the house, but um, that always really thrived in math. Mm. Um, so and and by virtue of being in the in a town that had a university in it, the great faculty in the high school, many of them were married to UT Martin professors. <clears throat> they ended up in this oh. smaller town, and it was like they they were very well trained. Um, oh yeah, sure, doing, right. Mm-hmm. So we had we actually got I, I got a really good really good education, um, mm. despite being kind of in, in the middle of nowhere. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Right. I, I, I'm now kind of piecing together Martin a little bit. That's small rural and it's got all these faculty. So you've kind of got this really interesting, uh, like lots of interesting selection, I guess, within the school system. Yeah. The only other place I've ever seen that's kind of like that. We were a few years ago, we went to this um, uh, the ski resort in West Virginia. And on your way to the ski resort, you pass this like bird robert bird like telescope thing Uh and it is um it's kind of an outpost of phd scientists who work on the telescope and and the folks who live in that town told we stopped for gas or something the folks who lived in that town told us that they had fantastic public schools because the spouses of the people who worked on the telescope (laughs) were the teachers in the public school you know and Mm -hmm. so they had this really educated faculty um, so, and that made me, that's actually made me think about that topic a lot, right? Mm. Like these interesting places where people move, um, from other places with at least one of those two people has a PhD in hand. And then the other yeah. one is try, is bidding into the local economy and that can produce some really interesting positive effects. Yeah, sure. Um, Did it create a lot of, uh, um, inequality that you thought was like, that the university's presence there with bringing in so many high skilled people into the community. I'm just thinking about the town I would have grown up in that I grew up in Mississippi that there wasn't that. And so I'm just kind of wondering what that would have been like. Did you, was there ever anything like that that you would have noticed as a kid? You know, I don't, you know, even in retrospect, like I don't think that dynamic really played out. Um, what what did play out though was like just some very very different perspectives on the world, mm. right? So like as a kid, I knew people who I knew Palestinians, I knew Israelis, oh. I knew like because yeah. they had been drawn to the town, right? Because of the university, and you wouldn't, and again, not a, not a huge share of the population, yeah, but they exist. Yeah. Right, and you have access to them, and you hear their stories, and it it kind of it mm. frames the way you think about the world in a really positive way. It was oh, a little yeah. bit of an eye opener. Um, Far less homogenous than a typical rural town like that I grew up. Right. In. That's fascinating. Right. Um, so when you get to the end of high school, when you sort of are thinking to yourself, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" What are the kinds of pictures and ideas that you have in your head? Um, I didn't. I had no picture. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I didn't have enough sophistication to understand that, like, despite having a, 
parent in higher ed, I didn't really have enough sophistication to understand the broad range of topics and disciplines that one would encounter in college, right? I just kind of left high school thinking like, I really like math. I'm going to major in math. And that's what I did. I showed up at, showed up in college and I was like, I'm a math major because that's what I'm good at. Right. And it took some prodding from my advisor uh, who was an economist. And mm. he said, you know, if you like math, like really ought to at least try taking an econ class. And um, I did that my sophomore year. I resisted my whole freshman year. And finally my sophomore year, I was like, okay, well, I'll take an econ class. And then you're I a math major on. at Vanderbilt. You go major. to Vanderbilt and you're like, I love math. I'm, this is what yep. I love. I, I want to be a math major. And so someone is an advisor. Who's your advisor? So Jeremy Atak, who's a famous economic historian, is oh. randomly assigned to me as my advisor, Oh, which is like, I mean, you want to talk about fate. Like, so he, he slowly, he worked on me. He was like, just take one econ class and see how it goes. So when I finally did that, I just fell in love. What did he think he saw? Did he see something in you or something? I think he just saw somebody who, who loved, I think he saw somebody who was obviously kind of math oriented, analytically oriented. Yeah. Um, but who really enjoyed being in his office talking to him about what he did. And so he just kept saying, like, I think you just need to try this. And he was totally right. And um, I didn't abandon math. I kept it. But I added an econ major into that. And that's really where my that's that really made my heart sing. Right. Like yeah. just the combination of like human stories and this kind of like analytical, technical way of thinking um, was where I needed to be. Wait, so it was history. People. It was economic history that made your heart. Well, I didn't start there. I started in like general econ. Right. And so then, so he just kept working on me. Then he kept saying like, well, why don't you take an economic history class and see what you think? So I took an economic history class and I was like, okay, I actually do kind of like this. And, um, and then I didn't, you know, when I graduated, I wasn't going to grad school. Ah. I left undergrad and I got a job in the real world. thought that's what I needed to do. Mm -hmm. Um, got out there and thought, about this so I ended up back in grad school he was not at all surprised you know and he continued Jeremy continued to kind of help me find my footing put in a good word for me in graduate schools and um so anyway eventually he he eventually got an economic historian out of this process but it (laughs) wasn't without its detours Um, yeah and he had to work pretty hard at it yeah yeah so it was when you said it was the human stories of economics, but it was the more general economics at the beginning. That's interesting. I think, you know, what what was the human stories that you remember kind of being like captivated by at that at the very beginning? Yeah. Um, well, I don't know that I can tell you. I don't know that I remember kind of what happened sophomore year, but I can definitely say um my the economic history class that we were in, we had to write about a technology and kind of how it evolved and changed human behavior. And I mm. remember writing about um, amniocentesis was the technology that I had. And I had to kind of tell this narrative about like the, its adoption process and the way that it changed people's lives, which amniocentesis really changed people's lives, right? Mm. Brought a whole new set of kind of moral issues and ethical yeah. questions to child rearing, childbirth and no. pregnancy. Um, so, and then in my senior year, we had to write, I took like a senior thesis writing class and we had to write, um, a paper on an economic topic of our, of our choosing. And I wrote about, um, 
economic stagnation in Japan. Oh. And it's funny in retrospect, because clearly I'm not a macroeconomist, but at the time I thought I might be. And uh -huh. um, so I wrote this paper about like what was going on with their central bank and how it was playing out in the economy and all this sort of stuff. And it was um, it was just like the most fun I'd ever had. I just loved thinking about that, writing about it and how it was impacting people's behavior. How does deflation change people's attitudes and the way that they operate? Um, so it's not it's not human story in the sense of like, you know, meet Carla. She has three children. Right. It's, not, it's not that, but yeah. it is like. How does, how do all of these forces change the way that people live and how they act and what choices they make? And I just, you know, I couldn't get enough of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So you, that's amazing. So that sounds, so, so you end up at Northwestern and, you know, most people that go to the good, that go to good schools or basically everywhere they're just, they say, you know, I, I go to this school that was the best school I got into, but I was curious, like, you know, when you are going to Northwestern, what do you even know about the school before you get there beside it being like a great school? Did you know anything ahead Did, of time? I, I visited a bunch of schools, so I didn't make that decision, you know, blindly. I uh -huh. went to see the places that I got in. I chose, I was careful about where I applied. Then I went to visit the places that I got in. And um, I just felt like, it was the right level of kind of um, grounded research of like, I, I call it engaged research. I think that probably means something different to every single person who hears it. But to me, it's like, are you doing work on a topic that has like an actual real life implication, right? Yeah. That That's what, that's my bread and butter. So mm. um, I'm not a theorist. Um, right. So, uh, so Northwestern really put forward those set that set of people uh, that visit day. And I thought, okay, I, I can definitely find my way here. And then again, like Jeremy Atuck is in the background here saying to me, like, there's some really good economic historians there. I know you think you don't want to do that, but like, well, you were thinking you, you didn't want to do that. No, uh, -uh. no, I was still, I was still on the macroeconomics train. Oh, you like, were still, you were thinking macro. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Huh. And so he said, you know, even if you decide you don't want to do economic history, like they're going to look after you. It's a good place to be. They're good people. So it's like, okay, I, this makes sense to me. It's funny um, that you keep seeing that there's an economic historian inside you and and you're and what what do you what do you think he's resisting. what's he noticing? <laughs> I don't know. Huh. I don't know. And maybe I mean at that point maybe he didn't. Maybe he thought like, well, okay, maybe she is gonna be a macro yeah. economist. But I mean I you are kind of so. a general economist though. You end up at the Council of Economic Advisors and I mean, right? You're at the CEA? Uh yeah, but I don't, you know, like I didn't last one week in mac in the macroeconomics. Sure. <laughs> I mean yeah. I survived. I right. passed. But like it was pretty clear, like very yeah, quickly yeah, yeah. when we got oh, yeah, to in like, grad recursive school. whatever's <laughs> that I was like, oh, okay. This is not me. I this you is couldn't so see the human even, story in the in Oh the my gosh. I wasn't even like, you know, <laughs> nowhere was the human story and all of that. So I just I was like, okay, this is not this is not what I'm gonna do. Yeah. Um now I can survive this, but yeah. I'm not this is not making my heart sing. So right. Um, but you quickly kind of sort into the economic history classes. What did and there was a good at that time. What is the economic historians doing at Northwestern at this time? Who are the well? Who, it's, 
it was the you know the primary two folks were Joel Mokir and Joe Ferry, who are uh-huh. very different from uh-huh. each other, but both very much human story people. Uh-huh. Um, Joel is doing a lot of like European Enlightenment sort of stuff. Oh. Joe is starting the move in economic history to using kind of mass census data as longitudinal um, oh. panel data. Right? He's so the he's person just, that starts that. He's the person. Oh, I didn't know that. While, like, right as I'm getting to grad school, Joe figures out that the census data, individual level census data has been digitized and is searchable at Ancestry.com for genealogical purposes, but can be used to generate these longitudinal data sets to track people over time and answer some pretty fundamental questions in economic history. And he's just sorting that out and starting Um, to build those data sets. We built them... So I got to Northwestern in 03 um, wow. and by 05, I'm probably I'm working for him as an RA and we are by hand yeah. building, like searching individuals. I heard about building these data sets, which now is totally automated, automated, but y'all were by hand doing it. Mm-hmm. What does that mean by hand working through census individuals? Like, that sounds impossible. No, like we had an Ancestry.com account and we were looking for individual humans and then like transcribing what we found on their How long is that going to take into a, a human? Oh, it took forever. That's <laughs> oh why you had an God. army of grad students. Too, oh my you know? gosh. Well, was that exciting? Did that feel cool? Um, It did. It was, honestly, it was the, gra- the best RA job ever because it was mostly mindless. Uh-huh. Right. Like there's some judgment involved in it. Like, okay, what should I do about this situation? But for the most part, you could do it while kind of zoning out. And that Mm. I needed that. I needed to be like, okay, I'm going to work really hard, like 30 hours a week on my own research. And then if I can take these 20 RA hours and really not have to think very hard, that's, that worked for me. Mm. Um, so I, that was great. It was a great team to be part of, but then you could also see how Joe was using that data to do something interesting. And I ended up um, not really as part of my dissertation, but after I left Northwestern and got here at UT, then I thought, well, I got my own set of really, I think, fundamental questions that this technique can answer. And let me figure out how I might build a. What do you mean this technique? This the the data set that you that already created or linking, continuing to do it? That census linking process, mm. right? And like your question your research question really determines like wh- what data do you pull? Yeah. You don't start with just like, I'm just going to take everybody in 1880. And then like, so if your question is about westward expansion, which Joe's was about westward expansion, you're looking at a particular set of people in 1880 of a certain age in a certain place and then following them over time. Yeah. I was interested in questions of racial dynamics and labor market. Mm. And so I needed to pull data sets that were overweighted for black Americans Mm. um, so that I could do sort of a good black, white comparison over time. Mm. So anyway, so, so then I started to think through those sorts of questions and I um, convinced Bill Collins uh, who was at Vanderbilt, but I did not have him. I was wondering what this connection was. I was an undergrad. You never had him. but Never had him. Didn't know him. But just reached out to him and said, like, hey, you're the person who kind of knows mo- the most about what we do know about this, you know. <laughs> so would you be interested in working together on this? And he, Bill's brilliant. So he very quickly mm. was like, well, here are the 15 fundamental questions that your technique could answer. And I was like, okay, well, this looks like 
This looks like enough to get me tenure. So this let's, is a research. Let's get cracking. You know? Yeah. Were you thinking that, Marianne? Were you thinking, oh, wow, this is a, were you thinking I have a question or were you thinking I have a research agenda or you were thinking I have 15 papers? Like, you know, that that's something that is probably just worth just getting your opinion about. Like assistant professors don't always have even those kind of salient, I don't know if they do, that have those salient categories of like, what's the ladder to the next place. And I was just curious, I mean, were you, were you looking for a research agenda or did it just kind of like come together nicely like that? So when I got to UT, I had a really good department head who um, really structured my thinking for me. Mm. <laughs> All right. And so what he said was get your job market paper out, get your other dissertation chapter out, get it done immediately. That's your first priority. Then find the next significant, significant thing you're going to do and get going on it. That's your, so that's in your first year, that's what you need to get done. Get two papers out the door, start your next significant thing. So my next significant thing was going to be in partnership with Bill in this area that I was interested in. And other things came to, to me, like I, you know, my new colleagues at UT had other ideas of things we could do together. Celeste Carruthers and I have a whole series of papers she and I came to UT the same year in the same year. So those things also became part of my priority set. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was this department head was right, like don't piddle, right? You need a you need in addition to what you did as a graduate student, you need another significant thing that mm-hmm. then helps define who you are. Um, and so that's what my research agenda with Bill did. And it turned out that like, I could do that and I could do an agenda with Celeste. And that really defined everything that I did my first six or seven years was with those two people. Um, race, and, labor markets with Bill. And race what is and labor markets with Bill. And then Celeste and I worked on a lot of kind of Southern schools, again, wow. has a race dimension. So lots of, lots of spillovers between those two agendas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did work on Rosenwald schools and then other things that related to kind of race and schooling in the South in the um, early 1900s. Yeah. Um, uh, and so are you continuing to find this sense, this linked census records to be the main source of your data sets? Or, or is it is it just that because you're looking at sweeping stretches right so that that like yeah. that's what you use the that's what you're going to use linked censuses for it's like a hundred years of time or something like that you don't have to do that as an economic historian I mean, i'm just kind of thinking out loud is that right yeah you could just that's say, right i mean you I'm only well, going to focus see, on this one thing at this time but you're looking at changes long stretches yeah, I mean, bill and i our final paper in our series Oh. Um, is about kind of the evolution of black white income dynamics from 1880 all the way through the 1970s, 1980s, oh. even into the early 1990s. Yeah, and we can't use census data for all of that because you lose access to the public census data in 1940, 1950. Uh-huh. Now, I guess. Um, so you have to kind of you have to patch on other sources of information to do that sort of work after 1950. Um, but again, like now I'm back to Joe Ferry, when Joe was done pioneering the Ancestry.com census linking project yeah. thing, he then started working with census on how we might get some good data, longitudinal linked data for 1950 forward. Mm-hmm. And that requires that you get into 
the restricted access data. So now we're not talking about things you can access, you know, freely online or through Ancestry. Now we're talking about, okay, I got to be inside a census research data center mm. with, with special sworn status right. and an approved project that census has approved. But Joe had done all the work in the background that was like, okay, here are the data sets that census can link for researchers. Mm. And it's, CPS and other pieces of federal data um, that aren't census, aren't, aren't the census, the decennial census, but are managed by this, the um, censor, census and Department of Commerce. Yeah. So he was working behind the scenes to kind of pave that trail. And that is now, Celeste and I have a project that I don't get to spend a ton of time on, but she does, um, where we're using that those pieces of information to try to understand what happens during the civil rights era, which where we don't understand a ton about labor markets in that period. And mm. so now we're kind of, we're moving our moving our gaze forward in time, like, okay, we we really understand what happened in the early 1900s. We've done a lot of work there. Let's start thinking about what happens as we get major landmark legislation. Yeah. Now how do labor markets behave? Right. right. What sort of behaviors do you observe from employers and from workers? And how, do, how does the convergence that, that happens, how does it happen? Like, what right. is the, what are the mechanisms? Um, so again, Joe, you know, brilliant and way ahead of the rest of us um, has made that possible. Wow. That's exciting. You know, it's interesting. Um, I was uh, just kind of thinking as I was putting together the um, interview guide, I was thinking about, Celeste on your Vita. And I was thinking about Marcella on your Vita. And I just was thinking, you know, Marianne's got these like uh, partners that she's worked with a bunch uh, or at least some and in, in has been really productive. And I just was kind of thinking, you know, it, in some ways, like how opportunistic is it that University of Tennessee has several or some females of the same approximate age and cohort with complementarities and how many females might be siloed in a department. And I just was kind of curious, you know, it, to, to what degree do you think, I mean, it's so hard to ever, you know, cause you're like Celeste and you have all obviously have all this like personal chemistry and productivity, but I just was kind of wondering about the scarcity of women within the profession. And, you know, just what do you, what do you think kind of stepping back, how do you think it's had impact on a person like you and your productivity? Because I mean, in some ways you've kind of got, had a really nice draw. That's fair to say, I think. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. Or it could have been better, that. I'm sure, but it seems like it was not as you, you, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to prime it. I'm unfortunately, I feel like I'm priming the question, but. Well, you are kind of priming it, but that's okay. So I, <laughs> so here's what, I mean, it's interesting because I hadn't really thought about it this way. I mean, what I've always said is like, as all of this sort of Me Too stuff came out and we've had these reckonings within our profession about women and economics, I have always said, like, I 100% believe the stories of people, of women who have had these horrible experiences. I have not had that experience. Mm -hmm. I had some rough spots in grad school. Uh, mm -hmm. Let's just be honest. But since I arrived at the University of Tennessee, I've, mm -hmm. no, none of that has been my experience. In fact, mm -hmm. it's been the opposite. I think they, in some ways, I think leadership here said, okay, we finally caught a female economist. We can't lose her. Right. right? So like in, it really, in many ways worked to my advantage 
because it was like, okay, well, this is what I need to be successful. And you, you kind of can't tell me no. So, so then they would kind of give me what I wanted. So, uh, no, I mean, not, I didn't ask for anything extreme, but my experience was not one of like, oh, gosh, I feel like I'm at a disadvantage. I felt like I was. Mm. Yeah. I hadn't thought about until you just asked that question, like how much of that depended on Celeste and I being together. Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly like I would not have been nearly as productive had she not been there. Is yeah. it because she's female? I don't know the answer to that. I know. It's I will say though, Scott, that you probably don't know this, but um, the University of Tennessee had a full professor, female full professor promotion um, in the 1970s. Mm. early 1970s and did not have another female full professor in the economics department until Celeste Carruthers and Marianne Wanamaker were promoted uh, about a year and a half ago. Wow. So we, there was a 49 year drought. <laughs> that woman's still around. Is she passed away? Um, uh, sorry. Say that again. No, the- Anne Mayhew. Many of your, some of your listeners may know her. Anne Mayhew was the 1970s female full professor. She's an economic historian. Huh. Um, there was not another economic historian for 49 years and also not another wow. female promoted to full professor. So that makes it sound like UT is like this horrible place. But again, that was not my experience. My experience yeah. was that it was a great place to be mm-hmm. um, and that we got all the support we needed. And I think I can't speak for Celeste, but I think she would say the same thing. Yeah. Um, well, it's just kind so- of hard to know. Like, I guess I was just even... Yeah, I, it was. There was no way I could figure out how to ask the question without priming you. But I'm glad you, you aren't easily primed. But like, um, I couldn't like think to myself because I've been reading a lot of Golden Cats lately, and you know, thinking really a lot about artificial intelligence and skill biased technological change, and this idea of these labor inputs that get that have complementarities with some other input. And I just was kind of thinking as I was prepping, I just was wondering, well, it does seem like Celeste and you are compliments to each other's production function. If only, uh, if only because, um, uh, if only because, you know, you, you are, but like um, uh, the, the thing that I was kind of wondering was, um, is it, is it ever in your mind, possible that just a person with a common trait like that a common shared trait might be a complementary a compliment in a person's own productivity as an economist like skin color or age or religion or or sex or is it like you know i guess it's just kind of hard to know i mean you're confounded by like your own work your own lived experience yeah, I do. I mean, I've definitely had experiences with folks that I've tried to write something with where it's been very difficult. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, one one um, common thread in that is like, I didn't know them very well. Yeah. And it made it really difficult. Like, because I yeah, always yeah, yeah. end up writing about things that are kind of sticky and it like just made it impossible to, to navigate the the narrative right in a way that everybody was happy yeah, when yeah. you don't know the person real well totally so totally. so there could be frictions I, you know, yeah right so whatever the whatever the you know the tie that binds whatever that is yeah uh, it's got to be there's got to be something 
Right. Now, Marcella, like Marcella's a great example. Like I didn't know her very well. I met her mm. at a conference. We ended up sitting next to each other at dinner and she was like, Hey, I have this idea for this paper. That's literally how we got on that, on that Tuskegee topic. And she didn't have an economic history background, but she's a doctor. She's like an MD. Didn't she says she didn't, but really like Marcella was so connected to Larry Katz and to Claudia that like, mm. I know she doesn't, she wasn't formally trained as a historian, but she had enough of that kind of training and background that it was, I mean, she, you know, let's be honest, she could have written that paper without me. Um, so but, you probably knew this story though, right? You just because of your background yeah. with with uh, race yeah. and even with fertility, I just was thinking. I bet you you knew all about this, the Tuskegee. Just for the sake of the listener, for because a lot of people would live in other countries, can you just tell us a little the the one minute pitch of what this paper that you're referring to is? Yeah. yeah. So there's this famous episode in American history where the federal government sponsors this study of black men who have syphilis in the U.S. South and start starts in 1932. Um, ends in 1972 amid great scandal. And what happened between 1932 and 1972 is that there was a viable treatment for syphilis, which the federal government would not allow the participants in the program to use. Okay, so, so many, many humans die of syphilis and didn't have to, and also passed it on to their kids and didn't have to uh. because the federal government kept them, kept information from them and kept them in this experiment. So anyway, revealed in 1972 by a whistleblower um, inside um, the federal government and then by a reporter at the Associated Press, it becomes this big thing. And it's a it's it's part of our training when we do um, IRB training on our campuses about protecting subjects and experiments. It's always part of that training, but it also has a life uh, in kind of in not I won't say popular culture, but it has a it, it is a um, the experiment and just the word Tuskegee mm. is commonly used in the same sentence with medical mistrust, yeah. right? That like, there's a whole, there's a whole group of people, um, most of them black men in this country who don't trust the medical system because of this event in American history. So the paper is just trying to unpack that, go back to 19th Or they may not know it's because of that. Is that That's true? right. They they're, they they right. have some distrust. It's it's funny. It's like you're you're. Am I right? I'm actually was thinking. It sounds like going full circle back to college because you were talking about that uh, that procedure, that technology that had all this effects on behavior and had all these ethical dimensions. It seems like you kind of are circling back yep. a little bit to it. Yeah, yeah. So we were trying to go back like root cause, like what happens in 1973. What happens in 1974? Can you observe like differences in human? And that's when that's when everybody learns. They learn they're in an learns. experiment. They didn't know they were in an experiment. And the whole country learns. The whole country. So learns. the whole country learns that the federal government and the medical profession have conspired mm. to do this, right? So, um, and so then we're looking at not the people in the experiment, but every you know, every black man in the country, like how do black men in general respond to this information? And we use some measures of their proximity to the human subjects in the trial um, to try to get at this sort of intensity of the narrative. And so we find, I mean, you know, again, like um, we, what we find is that there's this real intense drop off in people's utilization of the healthcare system and a rise in death uh, and mortality 
um, specifically among Black men and more so for people who are in closer geographic or cultural proximity to the victims. Can you trace so, out a little bit of the, 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 the causes of death? Is it just all kinds of stuff? It's chronic. They, so it's chronic disease that doesn't mm. get treated effectively, right? So people just stop. They stop engaging in those um, healthy behaviors of going to see your doctor and figuring out what's, you know, let me take your blood pressure. Let me like, let's see what's going on with you. Like they just, they withdraw from that process. And so then chronic illnesses that otherwise might have been caught and managed are not caught or managed. And so that's where the rise in death comes from. That is such a deep paper idea of these like institutions just kind of floating around in people's minds being like, it's it's kind of like, you know, I choose to trust the medical profession and therefore use it. And now you just moved into a new equilibrium. That's never yeah, quite got, recovered. And never quite recovered. Although, you know, is it still about Tuskegee or is it now about something else is really hard to trace out. But the other part of it is like, it's not, it, it's not irrational. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a conspiracy theory. Right. It's like, it like actually this happened. happened. It's real. This happened. Right. It's a, and it it's happened a rational to response to one group and not another. It happens yeah. to one group and not another. That must have been an exciting project. Exciting project. Was it? Uh, it was depressing. Yeah. You know, I mean, a lot of stuff I work on is depressing, but uh, it was, you know, that's a hard thing to think through. Like, and there were some moments in that, you know, one of the kind of ethical questions that came up in that project was like the records of the people who were in the in the study and their children are all public information. They're contained in some library in Atlanta. And there were lots of folks along the way who encouraged us to go to Atlanta and dig out their information uh. and try to find them. And I was like, I just am not going to do that. I just am going to let them have their privacy and uh. I'm not going to. This is one of those where I'm not going to trace, you know, every single mm. path here and try to figure out what happened to their kids and their grandkids. I just am going to, I think I'm going to let that one be. Yeah. Um, let's just take the aggregate data and let that be good enough. Yeah. Well, you know, I know we don't have much time left, but um, I just wanted to kind of end with, um, you've done so yes. much more than just academia. I was just kind of looking at your career and you've been just this, such an impressive economist from like my, that's like, you know, my age kind of like, you know, 07, 09 graduation. But then you like work in the, the, you work in a presidential administration. You're on the board of all these firms. Now you're Dean of a new policy school at the university of Tennessee. And I just was kind of wondering, um, you know, what, why do you think, what do you think all this is about? What makes you like this? What, what, what exactly is the, like the little, you know, X factor of Marion Wanamaker. That's like, this is such a natural stage of your career or the, this is who you clearly are. What's, what is it? In, uh, my boss at the University of Tennessee, the chancellor, has um, her whole leadership team and really the whole campus has to take this Clifton Strengths assessment. Okay, so if you know oh. me, like I am not a soft person, like strengths assessments, leadership, like not my category, but I had to take this, this assessment and I have, uh, I took it and I have kind of 
learned a lot about myself in that mm. process of understanding like what are my strengths and if you haven't taken the assessment I would I, I can recommend it because I do think it just gives you a lens on like why do I act the way I act why do yeah. I make the decisions that I make right so your question is like why you know why have you made just why have you made a set of decisions that takes you out of being just an economist which is a right. job that I love and could totally do that all day long and be happy and mm -hmm. added these other things like why yeah. did you need to go to DC for a year why do you serve on these boards why are you willing to kind of spend your time uncompensated on this other stuff mm -hmm. and so what i've learned is that the thing that drives my behavior is significance so mm -hmm. if you walk in my office and say, like, I want you to be part of this, it's going to be really significant. <laughs> We're going to make a difference. This is going to, this is going to change, not, you don't have to change the world, but like, this is going to matter for people. Yeah. I will do it. Right. Right. Uncompensated, you know, middle of the night, I'm going to need you every weekend. I mean, I will do it. If it's like, I want you to do this leadership program that's going to be meaningful for you. No way. I am not doing that. Uh... But if you tell me it's something that's like significant to other people like yeah. it makes other people better happier you know more successful i'm in so the thinking about being a dean of a new policy school right like the whole point of this thing is that we need good people in public service we need well-trained people in public service our public problems are really big they need people who know what they're doing to work on them mm. um and ut didn't have a program or a set of programs that was producing that outcome. And so you know, Chancellor said, basically, like, I need somebody to build a school for public service. And would you do that? Yeah. Well, that's about as significant a thing as you could offer me. I can't uh, think of something more significant than that. Yeah. Other than, you know, would you like to work in the White House? That was significant. And I was happy right. to do that for the same reason. So yeah. it, you know, and I'm willing to do pretty much anything to make this thing successful. Yeah. Oh, it's a uh, Clifton assessment. Clifton strengths. Clifton strengths. But it really did help me. Okay, you I'm going to go check it out. It frames everything as a strength. They're not all strengths. Like I need some things that explain why I do the things I do as strengths. That's what I, I need to go find yeah. that right now. It reframes it. Like one yeah. of my top five is command, which basically means uh, Right? And so, but it, yeah. the way- Man's a better like, word though. <laughs> the way the information is presented to you, you're like, okay, well, that could be useful in yep. certain contexts. Yep. Let's also think about what are the downsides of this yep. strength of mine. You know, That's awesome. Uh, yeah. Marianne, it is so good to, I hope we can, I uh, hope our paths cross and we can uh, have more conversations that uh, about your career and about uh, all your thoughts about um, life. I know you got to go. It's been an hour, but I just wanted to say thank you so much for uh, giving me an hour to talk and learn a little bit about you. Really Anytime, Scott. It was okay. fun. All right, bye. Fun. All right, talk soon. Gonna see you soon. Honey, you need me. Baby, I need you.